Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning broadcast. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, thank you. Good to be with you. After a very hectic week. Oh, it was a hectic week, all right. Oh, you meant, uh, you meant on the uh, diplomatic and political front. Uh, on every front. <laughs> every front is right. Where did you get the name for your new network? <laughs> Actually, my parents gave it to me. How do you oh, like that? Yeah, it, it was the foresight. It was their idea just a few years ago. <laughs> very few, of course. <laughs> well, we wish you great luck and success and Mazel in it. it. I'm sure it'll be a great hit. I appreciate and, uh, it. It is the future. I appreciate it. Yeah, it is the future, and we're going to get there before anybody else. And uh, people who've been with us for a long, long time, people like Rabbi Goldwasser and Rabbi Yudin have been enthusiastic supporters and have pushed me forward in this direction, and I thank them for that. And based on my only conversation with you about it, which happened before the announcement was made, it seems that you're also ready to come along with us and do what I'm asking all the listeners to do, which is come along for the ride. So we anticipate, I hope, many, many more weekly updates in the future. God willing. Bezrat Hashem. Um, you were in Israel for a short, very short visit this week. I know among the uh, uh, items on your itinerary were to see the uh, was to see the uh, president of Israel as he, I hope, continues to recover and get stronger after his stroke. What could you tell us about uh, Shimon Peres and your visit to him? Uh, it's true. I, I, because it was UN Week, I just uh, I flew in in the afternoon and flew out at night because I had to speak at the opening of the 50th anniversary of the celebration of uh, Jerusalem's reunification at the Jerusalem Foundation uh, kickoff. And uh, I went to see uh, the former president. He is, um, you know, it's in a very serious condition, obviously. He doesn't doesn't really open his eyes, but he did squeeze the hand of his son-in-law, who is his physician also. And... uh, uh, I met with the family for a very extensive period, and that was, uh, I thought it was a necessary and important thing to do. You know, I know that people have political differences with Mr. Perez, and uh, I've had some over the years, but we have to recognize that this is the man who built the Mona, who built the Israel's nuclear program, who got the jet, original jets from France, who built the foundations of the IDF. I mean, there's so much that uh, that he did that people forget his historic role working with Ben Gurion and um, uh, his in- immense contributions. The uh, the New York Times of all sources, and I wish I could find it now. It just it struck me and uh, jogged my memory as you're speaking about him. Had an article this week, essentially, um, uh, you know, indicating that. Uh, uh, that you know, Shimon Peres is the, and we mentioned this last week. You know, the last of a generation, and certainly the last of the people around who uh, who bridged that gap between the founding of the state of Israel and the modern state of Israel. And uh, in addition to um, what you said in terms of political differences, people, we have to recognize that we have to recognize that he had had a role, and uh, we are eventually going to miss those who've connected us to the very beginnings of the state. Uh, you know what, I think that's uh, an important point, and, and we tend to overlook it because of subsequent uh, issues that arose and political differences that arise in Israel. Um, but, you know, the book, The, the Greatest Generation, about the, the World War II generation, right. and th- there is something missing. It is not that every generation replicates it. We produce our own leadership, but it is different. And... When you look back and having that link, I mean, when I remember when the late President Navon 
used to come and speak and what he he was such an amazing man uh, underappreciated i think certainly in the diaspora those who knew him in israel appreciated him man of culture he was a Svardi and uh, worked with men gurian as his secretary his assistant he used to tell us and regale us with the stories of that era of what they did it, it, and, the, and the members of the president's conference would cover the spectrum would demand every year that we bring him back and bring him back and he would speak for two hours and would never have enough to, to be able just to, to hear and to, to listen to, to these great uh, voices. And, you know, it's also true, you know, how many great Rabbanim, have, you know, when you sit with somebody who's 95, 100 years old, uh, Rav Steinman, those uh, Angazunt and others, there's nothing comparable to it. It's an experience. It's not. It's something you can't relate. It's. It, it, and and we do miss them afterwards. And um, in addition to that, one could add those who are survivors, who are you know toward the end of their lives now at this point. And, and, and I don't know if you're going to appreciate this this tangent because it's it's so bizarre the way I'm bringing this up now. But it, it was so irritating to me. We know that. Um, there are segments, uh, and you're, you're, I think you're going to be upset that I'm even acknowledging it, but I just can't hold back. There are segments of our community. Hold back. <laughs> I'm trying. There are segments of our community that were actually on the street protesting yesterday when Prime Minister Netanyahu was in the U.N. And I'm talking about it. It was disgusting, and I didn't know that was where you were going, but I, I walked through. It was disgusting, and it, it gets worse and worse. And when in their camps, they train their children, and there are videos online proving it, train their children with a mock limo coming down and they give the children eggs to throw at it and they yell Benjamin Netanyahu and, and, and terrible things, say terrible things. And in the other camp, they, they uh, train them with demonstrations with flags. I mean, this is really something the community has to look at and decide how it's going to handle it. And you can, they can keep saying it's not, it's not this group, it's not that group. Look online and see the proof of it. And the demonstration yesterday, it was simply outrageous at a time when we see at the United Nations the efforts to, to demean, to diminish, to denigrate, and it, and it just, they use Israel as the foil. I'm not saying they can't have differences with Israel. I think there are plenty of criticisms and legitimate ones. But you've got to think of where the venue is and wh- wh- how you give expression to that. Um, well, first of all, I'm glad I brought it up now. <laughs> but secondly, um, my reference to Holocaust survivors is that often when you know, people would make uh, a denigrating comments about, uh, about the Zionist state, so to speak, very often they were sitting next to, in their own synagogue, Holocaust survivors who, of course, would have given literally you know, their right arm to have had a state of Israel during the era that they, thank God, survived. And I think that that kept certain people in our community in check. We're going to lose those survivors very soon. Soon. I don't know if there'll be anybody to keep them in check. And I want to add one other thing, and you just said it, and I hope I could say it in a more acute fashion. There are people in our community who align themselves in many other situations, and I would, I would argue rightfully so, you know, t- to a good end very often for causes and for political positions, etc. It would be nice to see those groups and those leaders condemn those who go ahead and protest on a day like yesterday, go ahead and condemn them the way you just did on these airwaves. So if you're going to align with those groups, which is fine, and there are many prominent people, very prominent leadership who together stand for many different causes, but if you're going to stand with them on, on, you know, on certain, you know, for certain issues, it would be nice on an issue like this to come out and condemn them. 
Yeah. Right is right. Uh, Prime Minister speaks yesterday, and, um, well, <laughs> a couple of very interesting things. First of all, I absolutely, I don't know whose idea it was, maybe his speechwriter, maybe he himself, I loved the approach that he started with. Uh, he, you know, t- speaking about you know turning toward the future and times changing, I love the approach that he essentially gave a warning, a directive to the United Nations that you know, uh, you you guys have a habit of of condemning Israel, and we know that you know he said twenty resolutions against Israel during the same period of time, three resolutions against every other country on the planet combined, which was a cool statistic, I must say. Not nice to be on the receiving end of it, but an, an interesting statistic. Uh, but then he goes ahead and says, you know, now more than ever, countries are aligning with us. Now more than ever, people are, are understanding that they, as world leaders, have to, uh, you know, rely on Israel for so many different things. And it, it's time for you guys to come around. You know, you could yell and scream at us as much as you want in this building, but we're getting to the point where you're going to be applauding us very soon. I love that approach. What did you think? Uh, I think the positive approach is very effective. Uh, as you know, he also extended an invitation to Abbas to come and address the Knesset and right. said he would accept one to speak to the PA Legislative Council. In Ramallah. And Abbas's response, of course, was uh, quite to the contrary. He condemned later on the Balfour Declaration. He called on Britain to recognize the, the Palestinian state as the least that he could do to make up for it. I mean, his essentially was a, a, a negative message. Uh, and you know that Netanyahu yesterday afternoon held a session with uh, African leaders, and then there's an exhibition and a, a, there was a program at the United Nations where um, high-tech companies presented with uh, technology specifically geared to Africa, Asia, and others. And many ambassadors, leaders came to see it and to hear uh, the prime minister spoke at it. Um, but the truth is that the isolation, and, and I saw it this week in our many meetings, including with key uh, leaders of Arab countries, uh, Many of them do, that do not have, or most don't have diplomatic relations with Israel, but, you know, meet with us and know the relationship that obviously that we have with Israel. There is a different attitude. There is a changing climate uh, driven in part by Iran, driven in part by the absence of the West, driven in part by the uh, nuclear agreement and the concerns about the uh, aftermath uh, of that. Um, it doesn't mean that the Arab states are going to uh, stop their uh, the votes and the automatic majority is not going to disappear. And many African leaders with whom we meet, we raise it with them. They don't even know how their ambassadors vote or on what issue. Our particular emphasis was on the UNESCO resolution. And right. you know, there's another meeting scheduled. Where and the are. Human Rights Council. The, you know, the United Nations Educational and Social Council, uh, where they ha- have deleted the traditional names of all of our holy sites, the Wall, Western Wall, the Kotel, the, the, the uh, Kever Rachel, Marat HaMachpelah, the Cave of the Patriarchs, all of these names are now known by them only by their Muslim names. And uh, But where we do see the manifestation is that this year the Arab states are not going to submit a resolution against Israel at the International Atomic Energy Agency. And this is the first time, I think, in three years that that is uh, the case. And, you know, they haven't been able to get these resolutions through for the last few years. But this year, they, they are, are not even uh, trying. So that is a, 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 there are positive signs that we should not uh, overlook. And whether driven by interests, common interests or common fears, uh, 
we hope that this is something that we don't take for granted yeah. will I, continue. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds like you're skeptical about his ten year vision, but meaning that you know they would actually have you know they would be applauding Israel and voting for them ten years from now. But but nonetheless, I, I mean. I'm not quite sure how it works, and you know diplomacy so much better, and you met yesterday with, with leaders that, you know, you had to conduct some type of negotiations with. Um, I mean, is it unreasonable to think that if Israel is, in fact, going to be helping all these countries in Africa, Latin America, other places, especially the poor ones, that they couldn't use the leverage to essentially say to these countries' leaders, you know, we're here for you, and we will do whatever you need and, and you know, and, and provide the services that, you know, that are essential to saving your country, especially as in relation to water, et cetera. But we need your support at the U.N. We need you to, you know, to reciprocate. Is that unreasonable to think that that could be, you know, part of a negotiation? No, it's not unreasonable at all, and it is, in fact, an issue we raise, and even if we're not negotiators, but we're discussants with the, these heads of state, and the fact that they take the time, uh, I met the president of Turkey, the president of Egypt, and uh, many others, and those meetings last an hour and a half, so you cover a lot, and we, we of course, raise this and talk about translating the, the changes into action on the ground. And that means cooperation, whether against terrorism or in economic fronts. And Israel has so much to offer, and, and it's why we pushed this East, Eastern Mediterranean initiative. And we spoke to, to many leaders in the region about it, and they are, are looking to it because they see you know, water reclamation is such a big issue yeah. I mean, that is, Israel became uh, water independent and, and energy independent and has so much technology to offer, which is specifically of value to to African, Asian, and other countries, uh, even for Europe and, and uh, the, the uh, more developed uh, countries. So the, the opportunities are great, and it, it really puts the lie to the charges and the threats of isolation of Israel. It doesn't mean bad things can't happen. It doesn't mean that Israel still isn't boycotted and you still have the resolutions and uh, in, in individual states like in Spain and elsewhere that support BDS. Mm-hmm. But but we're seeing the counter voice now getting more and more currency. The one thing they say is, you've got to resolve this Palestinian issue. I mean, they dismiss, almost dismissively, but say it's an annoyance, it's, a, it's uh, an obstacle, and uh, urging that they do something. But when they, then you hear Iran displaying a new long-range missile, which they put on in their annual military parade this week, the Zolfakar, uh, uh, which has a, a reigning warhead, it's too technical, but it's an advance, another advance in their capacity, and the, uh, and the continued uh, aggressive attitude of the Iranians, particularly against Saudi Arabia and against their, the Sunni countries, um, but the... the um, you know, these things also motivate the leaders to say, look, we have one ally there. There's one country with whom we can ally who may really act to protect us against Iran. Right. That's their fear, and they think the West will not. Um, I mean, essentially, that's the article I read this morning about the uh, Russian attitude toward Israel. They feel that the only way that they're going to uh, you know, stem the tide of radical Islam is with Israel as an ally and a serious ally. But people don't understand the threat to Russia. I've talked about it here for a long time, and uh, th- that that the Russians have a huge restive Muslim population, Chechnya, the other, the stands, uh, but more importantly in their own military, a very significant part, perhaps even a third by the end of this, of their military officers will be Muslims by the end of this uh, decade. 
So, and, and in 1998, when he was head of the KGB, I met with Putin uh, to talk about transfer of technology to Iran, and he went off like a rocket on this issue. I mean, he got it, and he talked about the threat every day to Israel and to Russia uh, as examples. But today, that it, it is everywhere. Right. Look at the developments in Libya now. Uh, I mean, every place where you thought things would settle down, Afghanistan and Yemen pointed to as great foreign policy successes are today disasters. And, and all these people exporting terrorists, even though uh, um, ISIS is recruiting far less people and because they're losing territory, they're exporting a lot of their, ter- their terrorists. But these guys are coming back to Europe. They're coming back to the United States. They're going to come back to the countries where they came from and where, from where they have passports. Yeah. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jnm.org, and of course on the NSN app. I like the fact that he didn't bring up Iran in the speech until minute number 34, until way, way into it. I thought that because the U.N. speeches had focused on Iran so much, it was great that he was able to... Uh, you know, mentioned so many other things and a lot more positive angles before getting to it. I don't know if that, you know, if that's a big deal or not. In fact, I was wondering as, as uh, you know, it passed the half hour mark if he was going to ignore Iran completely in yesterday's speech. So, Well, I think he wanted to take the emphasis, shift the emphasis uh, onto the other messages, which you rightly uh, picked up. And you don't have to convince most of the countries today about the danger that Iran poses. You have to convince them that they have to act against it. And the fact that, that the money was, was given, the fact that, that we've seen more, the, the approval this week uh, for them to be able to buy the planes from Boeing and to lease additional planes. You're talking about hundreds of planes in total between Airbus and Boeing, etc., going to Iran Air, which uh, I think in 2011 was already... And named as as being involved in in uh, and and was sanctioned because they were involved in transporting weapons, etc. This is not you know uh, Delta Airlines or American Airlines that serve only civilian populations. They may serve uh, as a domestic airline for Iran, but they also serve to fly their troops and to fly their weapons to to Syria and elsewhere. So the the permission and and how it'll affect the funding we have to see whether it, it in fact will encourage uh, or allow uh, others to come in because the banks and other and and the financial institutions are still wary of doing business in Iran as they should be right. because of the money laundering because of the threat of sanctions being renewed because of the behavior of uh, of Iran that comp- that they're they're very reluctant to provide funding especially for a huge deal like this. All right, you got to help me now with um, uh, what seems to be this audience's favorite topic every time it comes up, at least based on the reaction that I get uh, over the last eight years. Uh, it was the 17th face-to-face meeting between Barack Obama and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, noon on Wednesday this week. And I don't know if you saw this, but the, one of the writers in the Jerusalem Post had an analysis of the previous 16 meetings, and they, have, they actually have given nicknames to some of these encounters with the, with the two. You, got, you listen to this, Malcolm. You got the ambush, the snub, the lecture, the icebreaker, and the, the non-meeting, and then finally the reconciliation of sorts. I mean, it's pretty amazing uh, the way this thing has gone down over the last eight years. Can you give us any details about the encounter this week? Well, it is probably the final meeting between them, and 
I think that the, the public, the effort, the public effort to put a good face on it and to uh, counter the uh, images of, of late, and it certainly comes in the aftermath of the signing of the Memorandum of Understanding, uh, which is coming under increasing attack, especially in the Congress, where we have many resolutions, including um, that Israel should not be bound by a, a limitation or a Congress can act to increase the amount of money should they deem it uh, appropriate for Iron Dome and uh, other things. And uh, 88 senators, by the way, urging President Obama to veto any kind of one-sided anti-Israel resolution uh, as in the past because of the concerns that that uh, will not be the case. But uh, it is important. Look, we know the tension some of the will remain, and, and we're not over. This is not the last word on the Middle East, I think, from the president. I think we will still hear more uh, on the Arab-Israeli issues or Palestinian-Israeli um, but, uh, you know, time is, is advancing until after the election. I, I doubt that we'll see anything uh, very serious. And then it could take many, uh, many forms. But, again, sending the message to the region, to Israel's enemies, and to Israel's potential friends, that the United States and Israel stand together despite any differences. They got this immense $38 billion package, um, uh, despite reservations that we may have or, or, or uh, the nature of the negotiations or restrictions that were included in it, these things send a very important message just as a negative encounter right. sends a very bad message, and that is exploited then uh, by the enemies of both countries. And certainly the, for the Arab countries, they measure the degree to which they can have right. confidence by the strength of the U.S.-Israel relationship, something I've shared with right. presidents for many years, <clears throat> because they look at it and say, look how important the Jews are, look how much they, you know, they control, they, they believe their own propaganda. And they're saying if, they don't, if Israel can't, doesn't get a fair shake in the administration, what, what possible chance do we have? Well, if Bibi does remain prime minister for a while, and I can't imagine that they would call for elections before at least a year from now, uh, I, I would assume you would suspect that he will have a much different relationship with either of the two major presidential candidates. In other words, this whole soap opera that we've seen between the president and the prime minister is is likely not to be replicated, correct? It's certainly different. Every president brings their own mark. It depends on the people around, depends on the issues, depends what comes up. Um, but, uh, yes, it will certainly be different. And But remember that the, the on the military side, which operates more independently and on intelligence the joint uh, i try to highlight sometimes the the uh, joint exercises which are are huge uh, and they're, and they're done because they're in america's interest as much as they are in israel's interest they share technology share experience and unfortunately israel's troops have been battle tested in many places yeah. their equipment uh, tested in actual battle situations that 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 relationship has remained strong throughout uh, you know, I pointed this out yesterday, and you know, you know that I obsess over these speeches when he gives them uh, here in the United States. So just oh, bear, yes. yeah, so just you yeah, you knew, you knew exactly where I was <laughs> heading today. That's for sure. But I, I just I, when he when he when he spoke about the Israel's biggest export in the '40s being oranges, and today it's technology. I sort of felt he was saying to the world, you know, we used to be uh, we used to be weak farmers, you know innocent, weak farmers, and now we are basically a cyber power that can, you know, that, that's in your best interest to, um, uh, you know, to side with. And I'm saying to myself, and I, and I know the point will not be lost on you, but I would hope that everybody out there gets it. Could you imagine 
Could you imagine if, you know, our grandparents saw this, where Israel is in a position like this, in a situation like this, and it's not always to see it when you're in it. It's not always to see the, the uh, you know, how incredible uh, history is when you're living it. But, you know, all these short years later, we have, in fact, seen Israel gone from, you know, a bunch of farmers to, you know, a technology uh, boom in so many different ways, and certainly a military boom. Um, I, I agree. I miss the oranges. Yeah, <laughs> but no, that wasn't your point. No, but uh, it's, a, it's 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 just unbelievable when you what, think they about it. They would have been shocked that Israel and the Jews are under attack, not because they're weak, but because they're seen as too strong, right? And to to defending themselves and taking the actions against people who seek to kill them, you know, I think the world would just like there to be open season that Israel that terrorists in in Israel attacking Jews, innocent people, and they shoot them and then they they condemn them. When it, these are clear cases of of attack, and and when there aren't, when they aren't, Israel acts more than I think any other country would against its own soldiers and 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 taking the steps to make sure that the standards and it's are met. But you don't hear one mention in the United Nations about the Israelis who run every day to save Syrians who risk their lives crossing the border. You know there are 500 Israelis who volunteer in an organization which I just learned about to take Palestinians who need cancer treatment or other very serious treatment at Israeli hospitals that they take them they go to the border and it's an organization people volunteer it's done for free to take Palestinians from the territories to the hospitals and back in Israel and at the same time it was revealed that the Palestinian officials make money charge um, and they take bribes to senior Palestinian officials for them to get the permits to go to to uh, get treatment. Huh. And senior PA and Hamas officials, they get permits to travel to Israel, and they go under the pretext of medical emergencies. Um, but those who can't afford to pay the bribes can wait years before getting such permits. How about that contrast to people and telling and, and the world seeing that? Unbelievable. I, I was not aware of that. It's just unbelievable. And by the way, one other thing about the presentation, uh, he, had the, uh, he had the description of the incitement that an Arab uh, a kid will grow up with on so many different fronts, family, friends, teachers, uh, religious leaders, Internet, social media in general. I mean, to a degree, to, and he called it child abuse, by the way, which I thought was a pretty strong term to use. In this case, uh, to a degree, we have to keep in mind what they are growing up with and what they are being taught on a daily basis, because the incitement, as you pointed out a million times, ends up being that, look what happened. You know, we had we had these um, attacks last weekend in New York, New Jersey, uh, something we really should talk about. Uh, All the the friends, neighbors and family, including immediate family, uh, are talking about is the incitement, is is the change in this person ever since they went ahead and uh, started following a certain religious leader. Absolutely, and it is abuse. It is abuse of children. Innocent children are being tossed into war situation. Innocent children, are, their minds are being poisoned. They're, they are are being taught uh, that to die is is the highest value for and to kill even more. And and you know when we last week we mentioned on the air and and uh, we met uh, as I told you with European and other leaders and we raised with them about their giving money to the PA, Palestinian Authority, which pays the terrorists and rewards them. And the more they kill, the more they get. And that they wouldn't tolerate this in any other circumstance. And they look at me, you know, blindly said, really, we give money? <laughs> they don't even know or appear not to know. And in some cases, they actually have started to act against it. 
but the the you know the PA's level of incitement has nothing to do with all of the political issues. And they say these are the stumbling blocks. This is the stumbling block. You train kids to hate. You're never going to have peace. Yeah. And you can't you know undo that in a week, in a year. It, it, it takes a long time to overcome that kind of, of animosity and 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 hatred. Yeah. By the way, I'm sure you had this also from your friends and relatives in Israel. Get out of New York and New Jersey. It's much safer here in Israel, <laughs> right? Well, I, I think you should, that should be true now because, well, it is safe in Israel, and people should go, and they certainly should uh, be taking advantage of the opportunity now when this is the lower season after the Chagim to go to Israel and uh, enjoy it. Uh, so much to maybe you'll even be able to come and see Abbas speak at the Knesset. Yeah, but have you seen the new discoveries that people are looking before the Yom Tovim at the amazing discoveries? But one that is really unique about the this uh, carving that they found of a menorah with seven branches and a three leg base that was carved on the stone uh, in in uh, block uh, stone block in the wall of a fourteen hundred year old Byzantine church in Abila, Jordan. And it's the first evidence of a Jewish presence in this, what was then a Hellenistic city, uh, which is near the border of Syria, not far from Israel. And this, this tripod base is, is, was common in the 4th, to 5th, and 6th centuries. Um, but, and again, it, it goes to the question of the nature of the base in the temple, etc. But this was originally, we believe, in a synagogue there. And there was a Jewish community, and then either when the synagogue was destroyed, it was they used this block in the church. But the menorah is clearly visible. And, uh, again, so many reminders that, and this the, the mosaic that they found that they now confirm shows this picture from a 5th century synagogue of Alexander the Great meeting some leader of the Jewish people, the Jewish community, whether it's Moses, some said, or whether it's somebody else. But, I mean, it, it, the discoveries just every single day. They found a, a weight with the name of a kind of family who's mentioned in the Gemara, not in a necessary positive way, but the name itself is mentioned in the Gemara, and they found a weight in the in an excavation. Uh, uh, you know, the, that was used when people bought stuff. You had a weight, but it had their name on it and the uh, and a design. So it's. It should be so mind-boggling to people, so exciting to these discoveries, which is the, certainly the most uh, concrete proof of of our place in Israel. And the state is not even seventy years old yet. Just and our history is three thousand years plus, and and you know this is this year is full of anniversaries, hundred years of um, Balfour, of Balfour, seventy years of the partition, you know, twenty-five years of Zionism, racism. There's so many. 50 uh, Jerusalem. and 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War. And people should remember the unity that the Six-Day War brought. The spirit, everybody was old enough who knows that it was such a unique time. We have to replicate that now, and not because there's a war, but as you said, because of some of the good stuff that uh, is going on. And we see that Iran is not letting up on, on any of its uh, uh, its activities and its, its incitement and the um, export of weapons and uh, the situation in Syria should should put everybody on notice that here you can have the whole international community involved, and they can't come to an agreement of a, a ceasefire that lasts forty eight hours. 
So true. All right, we will continue next week. Plenty to talk about next week. Malcolm will certainly address us before Rosh Hashanah and give us the message for 5777. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Have a good Shabbos. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM.